Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka with uh, Professor Akil Amar. Hey, Andy. And at the end of the year, I, uh, I think uh, that we're going to have some uh, special episodes for our audience. But before we get to those, um, we've got some uh, uh, unfinished business to attend to this week. Indeed, as does the Supreme Court. Um, <laughs> last time we, uh, we had a discussion uh, or a primer on precedent. Um, and we did so in connection with the uh, abortion case that's coming up this week, um, uh, Mississippi law, um, that's going to be reviewed and it's going to be argued the day that we post this, Wednesday, December 1st, uh, is the date that the oral argument is scheduled. Last time, as I said, we, we, we went into precedent. So why did, we, why did we go into a discussion of precedent? Because after all, almost every Supreme Court case may have some precedential uh, component to it. So why this case? Um, and I think the reason is that the Mississippi law uh, can be looked at uh, as a very simple case. In fact, I think Justice Sotomayor has made some statements uh, in some other uh, opinions that she's written on questions of certiorari and so forth, and a question for an injunct- request for injunctive relief in other abortion-related cases having to do with the Texas law. And um, so, in her view, these these cases are open and shut, and really it comes down to a question that Roe says 21 weeks uh, uh, is viability. Uh, Mississippi says you can't have an abortion after 15 weeks. Um, so that is clearly flies in the face of that precedent, so that's the end of the case. So that's uh, one way of looking at the case, and we, one way which we believe some of the justices you know, will be initially inclined to look at the case. Um, so therefore, it's necessary to look at questions of precedent, and is precedent so obviously controlling, and so forth. So that's one thing that we did last time. We're going to uh, refine that a little bit. We're going to uh, pre- present uh, Akil's version of uh, how to think about precedent, and we're going to compare it with um, other ways, or another way, uh, that, that one might have a framework for, for looking at precedent, and we're going to critique them. But before we do that, we have to, re- we have to look at another precedent, um, which is the precedent that uh, Akhil set of uh, defining the, a new common law in the, uh, <laughs> in the last episode. We, we, just, we uh, had a discussion about, um, about the common law and Blackstone and so forth, and uh, in doing so, something happened which is so rare on this podcast that we have to draw attention to it, which is that uh, Professor Marr uh, misspoke. I'm going to give him an opportunity to uh, clear up the record here. I goofed. Oops. Mea culpa. <laughs> and by the way, that's, those uh, kind of formulations are going to be relevant when I talk about precedent generally, because I think courts should um, uh, uh, admit their mistakes. They're not... Um, infallible, and when they make mistakes they, um, in an earlier case, a later case, should say, "Oops, in a mea culpa, um, we we goofed." Um, so um, I said in the last episode that um, arson at common law was setting uh, 
fire to a dwelling place at night. No, it's just setting fire to a dwelling place. Burglary at common law involves breaking into a, um, a breaking and entering a dwelling place um, at night. Um, so they're both about dwelling places, and, and, um, and, and, but burglary actually distinguished between daytime and nighttime break-ins at common law. And um, I was just um, misremembering because Blackstone, in his discussion um, of these two common law felonies, there were, I think, only seven or so common law felonies um, in jolly old England, um, and arson was one, and, and burglary was another, um, murder, there are a few others. So mea culpa, oops, I, I, I goofed. Um, arson was not actually limited at common law to um, a nighttime fires, but it was about dwelling places. Um, just to remind our audience what the, the, the general distinctions that we made last week setting up this episode that was the f- beginning of a primer on precedent, and we, we identified three different kinds of precedent. Uh, precedents involving judicial rulings where there's no statute um, in the neighborhood. Pure common law, case law, judge-made law, judge-fashion law, like initially the rules for arson, uh, murder, um, burglary, rape, and, and so on. Um, so we talked about how to think about precedent when precedents are basically um, judicial, interp- uh, judicial um, uh, decisions that don't, aren't purporting to in- interpret um, a statutory um, or constitutional or regulatory text. They're just they're pure decisional law, case law, common law. Um, the second category was where cases are purporting to construe a statute uh, um, promulgated by a legislature and or an administrative regulation. And then we identified a third category, um, which um, was different, I, I argued, um, from the earlier two, and that category is co- uh, constitutional precedents, judicial rulings purporting to interpret and or implement an underlying constitutional provision or principle or idea. And today we're going to be focusing on that third category, constitutional precedents, with particular um, application to um, Roe and the Mississippi case uh, and the Texas case um, that are um, now on the agenda. And I'm going to be introducing a whole bunch of distinctions and, and wrinkles um, about constitu- and debates about constitutional precedent that um, I hope will help our audience um, better understand what the justices are really going to be arguing about this week um, and in the opinion, the written opinions that will follow the oral argument. An initial thought about your uh, approach to constitutional-based uh, uh, precedent decision making could be that if the precedent is wrong when re- when the constitution is read properly then the precedent is trumped by the constitution period um, and and a thought about uh, another way of looking at it might be that um, one that justice kagan uh, adheres to which uh, professor Marr will describe in greater detail um, but uh that could also be looked at as an absolutist approach, that precedent actually means everything in some sense. Um, so, but last time we alluded to the fact that really it's not so absolute. We mentioned uh, just in passing question of reliance interests. Um, mm-hmm. We also talked about the fact that you might give you know, more weight to a, a precedent if, if a, a great jurist um, had, 
had written that opinion or if it was an important court, so forth. So we alluded to the fact that it's not um, absolute, but now we're going to expound on it more uh, in more detail. And we need to do that because you, as the listener and the justices, as decision makers and so forth, have to decide what really is the right framework. How, what is the most sensible way to approach precedent? Uh, in a constitutional court, which the court will be acting as um, in this case. So um, what is Justice Kagan's approach to to precedent? How does it differ from the framework that you've uh, outlined? Right. So let's, um, thanks, Andy, that's perfect. So let's define a kind of a continuum. It's a schematic, ideal types. I'm going to oversimplify a little bit, but just so you you get a, a sense of the range of the debate. You know, at one end of the debate, there are the strong precedent folks. I think today's champion is on the court is um, most of all Elena Kagan. Um, there are times when uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, seems to actually uh, have some sympathy uh, with this point of view. And uh, they're the strong precedent people. And uh, let's contrast them with what I might call the fundamentalists, the people who actually say, no, precedent isn't the key. Um, ultimately, the, constitu- it, the Constitution itself and what it truly means um, is um, uh, the ultimate uh, touchstone, uh, text, history, and structure of the Constitution, Trump precedent. So that's you know, the basic continuum, just to remind the audience of the position that I articulated last time, and then I'll give you um, uh, three different ways of thinking about Justice Kagan's position or um, uh, uh, on the other side. I basically said um, a couple of things. First, I basically said the Constitution is the supreme law of the land. No ifs, ifs ands, or buts. Uh, what's uh, um, the grounding uh, for that claim? I say, well, the text says so. It's the supremacy clause. And, and someone could say, yeah, but that, that's circular. That begs the question. You're appealing to the text to establish the primacy of the text. And I say, okay, it's not just that. It's also um, the underlying... Um, democratic principle that the Constitution came from the people, um, and it trumps even a statute that is contrary to it. And, and judges have to, when they are faced with a statute that says X and a Constitution that says not X, they follow the Constitution. That's called judicial review. Um, well, if they're going to do that for a statute, because the Constitution's more democratic than an ordinarily adopted statute, because the Constitution came from we the people of the United States, and amendments come from two-thirds of the House and two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states, and if we're going to modify that, we need a new amendment with two-thirds of the House, two-thirds of the Senate, three-quarters of the states, not just some ordinary statute. Well, if that's how we think about statutes, that statutes have to yield to the Constitution for reasons, not just of the text, but democratic principle. Well, that's true of a case, too. If a case says X and the Constitution says not X, um, well, then you go with the Constitution and not the earlier case, not with the precedent, okay? So I've just identified an argument from text, uh, now from kind of first principles or structure, um, and anything else would exalt the judges over the legislature, and that doesn't make sense. Um, that's a separation of powers-like argument. Um, and um, historically, I could say um, that the framers actually believed in the primacy of the Constitution overall. Um, but now here's a totally different argument. Um, it's a kind of, a, I think, an interesting and clever one. My claim will be, that, and was last week, but, and we're going to go into it in much greater detail today, the precedents themselves in generally say that about precedent. Meta-precedent. Precedents about precedent generally say in the Supreme Court that the Constitution um, prevails 
um, over um, mistaken, earlier mistaken precedents. So even if we start um, off a, 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 you know, with a, a commitment to precedent, we have to pay attention to what precedent itself says about precedent, and it says the Constitution trumps in general. So that's my position. Now, let me articulate three different formulations of the competing view. Um, and, and, and people who basically have my approach include, um, historically on the court, liberals like uh, Hugo Black, intellectual force behind the Warren Court, um, uh, conservatives like Clarence Thomas um, today. Um, Abraham Lincoln was very famously fundamentalist. He took the position that Dred Scott was wrong. And so Dred Scott should just be overruled because it was wrong. It was an astonisher, he said, um, in legal history, and he was going to uh, try to appoint justices who were going to undo it. You know, truthfully, I, I like having Abe Lincoln on my side. Um, and uh, now, what do the other folks say? Um, they're not, uh, and, and again, we can call this approach a more fundamentalist approach. Um, um, it's, it's Martin Luther, um, sola scriptura, you know, standing on the text of, of the Bible, um, uh, on, of scripture, as against the uh, corruptions and misinterpretations that have emerged from uh, the Holy Catholic Church, um, you know, to, to use a, a religious um, analogy. So, so I'm a fundamentalist of a certain sort, um, as was, um, as I said, Abe Lincoln, uh, as was the Warren Court, in fact, um, and we'll talk about that. Three formulations on the other side, the, the precedent worshipers, we'll call them. And I'm not trying to be, you know, mocking. I'm, you know, I'm calling myself a fundamentalist, but just so you sort of see the, um, the schism here um, um, in this um, continuum, the, the two apologies. Um, and here's what they say. They say three things, three different formulations. One formulation is, well, um, if um, precedent means anything at all, it means that you have to follow it even when it's wrong because um, if you only follow precedent when you think it's right, well, then precedent isn't doing any work at all. You're just doing the right thing as you see it. And, but, to ha- but everyone admits the precedent has to have some role in the system, but if it means formulation is, I think this is wrong, a, a massive overstatement, but if it means anything at all, it means that um, you have to follow precedent even when it's wrong, at least sometime, some of the time. Um, here's um, a second formulation. If you're going to deviate from a precedent, you have to show um, um, more that, than it was um, um, wrong the day it was decided. You have to show something has, um, in effect, happened since it was decided. Um, uh, or some, there's some new argument um, that it didn't consider before or especially um, something that's happened subsequent to it. It has to be today wronger, more wrong than the day it was decided for you to um, disregard it. If everything you say today you know, could have been said um, uh, the day the precedent was decided, well, then you have to just follow the precedent because the precedent repu- rejected all the arguments that you're making today. So you have to have at least some new thing above and beyond the arguments that were expressly or were implicitly um, uh, rejected or, or neglected um, by the precedent-setting court. The third formulation of this strong uh, precedent-worshipping idea um, comes from uh, a decision, a post-Roe decision called Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992. Um, I refer to it uh, um, in some of my writing as the Casey dictum. And Andy, actually, do you have um, uh, a copy of that in front of you? Okay, so in, uh, in Casey, uh, here's the sentence in question. Um, here's a quote. Um, decision to overrule 
should rest on some special reason over and above the belief that a prior case was wrongly decided, end quote. Um, and interestingly, at the time the court said that, um, there was no, it, it didn't cite any um, precedent for that proposition, and the only two things that it did cite were actually not majority opinions of the court, and the court, in fact, had never said that before, but that's another um, kind of formulation, that there has to be a special reason above and beyond you know, the error, the wrongness of um, the precedent itself in order to, to deviate um, from precedent. That was, again, 1992, a, a landmark uh, decision um, called Casey. Uh, and, and, of course, that's an abortion case. It's ca- you know, uh, Casey and Planned Parenthood. Absolutely. Now, um, more recently... Justice Kagan, this is, you know, um, uh, I told you I'd give you three versions, maybe this is 3.1 or something, got um, a court majority in in a case not involving abortion to say something pretty similar. Um, And this is now only the second time the Supreme Court, I think, has has made this sort of special, uh, this argument that you need something more than mere wrongness. Here's what she said uh, in a case involving Congress's power to uh, um, hold states liable for violating individuals' rights. And she actually said Congress doesn't have this power because of precedent. Um, And um, I really dislike this opinion in all sorts of ways. It's called Allen versus Cooper, um, and um, it's from 2020. And so uh, in the name of stare decisis, she basically gets a court majority with some over-liberal dissents or, or liberal separate opinions to, to basically restrict Congress's power to protect individual rights against states. And she does that in the name of stare decisis precedent. Um, and I think she's doing this in part because she sees the implications for um, the Roe versus Wade issue. Um, I think her views about Preston are very much influenced by her commitment to Roe. Um, um, so here's what she says. Um, Starry decisis, this court has understood, is a foundation stone of the rule of law. To reverse a decision, we demand a special justification over and above the belief that the precedent was wrongly decided. Um, uh, and then in the case at hand, she says, but you know, but the litigant offers nothing special at all. Um, he um, uh, contends only that if the court were to, to follow a correct interpretation of the Constitution, it would discover that this earlier case was wrong. And she says, that ain't enough. Okay, so those are the three basic formulations. One, that if precedent means anything, it means you have to follow wrong decisions. Um, because if you're just following them because they're right, that's not precedent following. That's just you know, doing the right thing. Um, Second formulation is you have to show, in effect, that the case, you know, that there's some, um, was wronger today, more wrong than the day it was decided. Or third, you need some special justification above and beyond, you know, um, mere um, error in or uh, wrongness in order to deviate from the precedent. So now you have, um, uh, uh, dear uh, audience, uh, the two polar positions, the, the precedent worshippers position um, as um, expounded by the, uh, Elena Kagan most recently um, uh, in this Casey opinion. It was a, actually a, a joint opinion by Souter, uh, Kennedy, and O'Connor, um, none of whom is on the court today. 
That was in, back in 1992, as the court was pivoting away from Roe while pledging allegiance to precedent, even as they actually overruled some um, precedents in the Roe line of cases back in 1992. Um, so that's on, uh, the, the position on one side, and then you've heard the fundamentalist position on the other, which is, as a general proposition, the text, history, and structure of the Constitution are, are what trump, um, and if the precedent's wrong, um, so too bad um, for the precedent, just as if a statute is uh, inconsistent with the Constitution, um, we go with the Constitution. And uh, this, uh, this matters when we talk about the uh, case this week, um, because as, as we've established uh, earlier, that it, it seems to fly in the face of Roe uh, superficially just on the, on the facts. So if you accept sure. Roe's reasoning, then, you know, if you say this is a precedent, it's a, say, a correct precedent, then, um, and, and under Justice Kagan's formulation... Or all, incorrect. But right, it's, all it's, precedents it's, are correct yeah, for the yeah. purposes of, of, of this analysis. Yeah. We, we never make mistakes. Uh, in fact, in fact um, that's not fair to the Kagan position. They acknowledge that there can be overrulings, and we'll talk about now. Now we're going to start to um, um, offer some of the shades of gray now that we've begun by just sort of sketching out in slightly um, overstated fashion the, 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 the two ideal types, the, the two polar positions. But I think that this gets to uh, questions like, like when, Ju- when uh, Justice Kavanaugh faced uh, confirmation, he was asked, um, you know, is Roe, you know, settled law? Um, and and, and um, this brings up one other thing, and then let's introduce all the, 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 mm-hmm. the, the, the relevant shades of gray. Um, truthfully, the, our abortion debate is not particularly honest, and, and words are twisted um, out of context. Let me pick three examples since you, you picked one. The, well, the one thing you can't say about Roe is that it's settled precisely because, you know, for, for half a century, um, uh, basically a, a huge part of the country has been um, mobilizing against Roe. And, and one of our two legacy political parties has, um, um, year after year in their presidential um, platforms, um, uh, uh, pledged to um, uh, overrule Roe. You can say Roe has been um, um, reaffirmed. You can say Roe has been repeatedly reaffirmed. You can say Roe has been, by the Supreme Court, you can say Roe has been followed um, in in lower court cases um, um, across the the land, dozens of them at least. Um, But that's not the same um, as it's been um, uh, um, followed or reiterated. Um, That's not the same as settled, uh, because settled actually suggests, oh, it's 9-0 or close to it. Um, on, on the Supreme Court, that, that, that people, uh, the losers have basically acquiesced in it. That's what settled means, and it's, it's not settled. Um, so that's one, I think, dishonesty or imprecision. Um, before we calling... move on from, from settled, can I, can I just ask you a question about it? Perhaps, I, I, I was thinking of it a little differently. Perhaps I'm wrong in the way I was thinking of it. Um, you know, in Roe, uh, if you, you know, Justice Blackmun's reasoning approaches uh, the question of a woman's right to an abortion uh, as an unenumerated right. He talks about the Ninth Amendment. He talks about substantive due process. These are places where um, rights are found that are not articulated in the Constitution per se. Um, So, And you have said in your discussion of unenumerated rights, where are they found? That they're found in the people, they're found in the legislatures, and so forth. So my thought was that, well, if it were settled, 
that would mean uh, when an unenumerated right is said to be settled, that would mean that it would be relatively uncontroversial among the yes. legislatures and among the people, which is different from it whether or not it's a nine-zero on the court. Um, well, if the court is following the country, you see, then uh, the court would um, uh, then if the country were settled, then the court would would be settled. We're going to talk about um, uh, that a little bit more when we get to all the. Um, uh, the subtle um, uh, shades of, of, of present-based thinking. But, but that's one you know, imprecision. It's not really settled um, um, when people keep pushing the, the, the other side. And, and on, Roe, at the time, just to remind our audience, invalidated the laws of 49 of the 50 states. Um, Griswold versus Connecticut, the case about um, contraception um, in the mid-1960s, uh, by contrast, invalidated the laws of one weird outlier state, my home state, Connecticut, which was the only state that made it a crime for married couples to use contraception in the privacy of their own homes and marital bedrooms. So, you know, uh, uh, Griswold was uh, sort of um, uh, uh, rooted in a kind of settled understandings of America in general, apart from Connecticut, Roe really wasn't quite. Roe was pushing against, actually, American practice, and American practice has not yielded to Roe, which is why state after state after state keep pushing back against Roe, Mississippi and Texas most dramatically um, right now, but they're hardly the only ones, Um, and why one of the two um, legacy political parties is pushing back so hard, and that party, (laughs) as our audience, of course, knows, has won a lot of presidential elections and put a lot of people on the court. Um, um, so that's one way in which I think the road debate isn't quite crisp, this word settled. Another is calling it a privacy, right? Griswold, um, which is about contraception, involves um, uh, a, a privacy in multiple ways. It, it takes place in a very private place, um, the home and indeed a, a bedroom, indeed a marital bedroom. Um, it only involves two people. There's no... Um, third party involved, there's no life in being um, if an IUD um, is used or, or, or a diaphragm or, or some other contraceptive um, uh, device. Um, John Stuart Mill would call that you know, uh, privacy. There's no harm to a third party. Um, Roe, to call it privacy, now again, even if you believe in the, the, the Roe right, privacy is an awkward formulation because it begs the question um, of the status of the fetus. It just, that bit to beg, meaning it, just, it decides it without you know, um, argument that, that uh, the fetus doesn't count because there's harm to a fetus. And if you don't see that when the fetus is a clump of microscopic cells, let's, pay, let's take a, a, an unborn human being or an unborn entity um, 33 weeks post-conception, you know, uh, when it's even viable, okay? So it involves this other entity, and then how do we distinguish as a matter of privacy between 33 weeks and 21 weeks, which is viability, and 15 weeks, which is Mississippi, and six weeks, which is Texas, or whatever, okay? But we might might make those distinctions, but does privacy help us? Um, The the procedure is typically not occurring in a home. Um, It's occurring far outside the home, um, between people who are typically strangers to each other, um, who may ne- never have even met and may never meet again, a, a physician um, and a, 
and a patient. It involves um, money-changing hands, typically. So um, a, the commercial domain, to a considerable extent, a professional domain, perhaps, but not entirely a private domain of houses and married couples and bedrooms and the like. And, and I keep emphasizing the word houses because the word house does appear in the Third and Fourth Amendments, and that was relevant in, in Griswold. So I think settled isn't quite the right word, Privacy isn't the best word. Women's equality might be a better way of thinking about the whole um, issue than, uh, uh, um, th- th- than privacy. Um, and uh, Justice Sotomayor, whom you mentioned earlier, says, um, oh, um, this Mississippi law, this Texas law, these are um, flagrantly, uh, um, flagrant violations of the Constitution. And I might say, oh, they might be flagrant violations of um, precedent, but whether they're flagrant violations of the Constitution itself, oh, that's actually the question to be decided, which is how we think about precedence versus what the Constitution itself really says. Um, uh, Brown is a, is a settled case, a strong case. Brown today is 9-0 on the Supreme Court and the country. And part of the reason why, I would say not the only reason, but part of it is Brown is very solidly rooted in words that are in the Constitution, like equal, um, that the races are supposed to be equal. We talked about that in our last episode, and the history of the 14th Amendment that's very much a history about racial equality, and that's precisely what the critics of Brown deny, that it has this strong rootedness um, in the text of the Constitution um, or in the history. And I'm not going to get into that in, in great detail um, today. We're just setting up the, the methodological debate between the, the um, text history and structure fundamentalist types on one side and the present worshippers on the other. So um, maybe we can start introducing some of these distinctions. Um, and, and, and I can give you some of the reasons um, why the, um, the strong formulations of the present worshippers are not actually um, persuasive to me and shouldn't be persuasive to our audience. First, Akil, just a quick correction. I believe you meant the critics of Roe complain that it isn't grounded in the words of the Constitution in the way that Brown versus Board of Education is. You said critics of Brown, but clearly you meant critics of Roe. Okay. Now, one way to look at it, to, to approach your approach, if you will, is to say, well, if, if one held Justice Kagan's approach, they would criticize you and saying, well, um, you know, you're saying, okay, the Constitution is the supreme law of the land, and that trumps cases, um, so why are you not giving any weight at all to precedent? And in fact, I think you, 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 know, you have a, a series of ways in which you do give weight to precedent. I do give weight to precedent, so when they say, oh, if precedent means anything at all it has to mean to follow decisions that are wrong say no let me tell you all the ways in which precedent counts even if you are a fundamentalist here's the first and oh it's a big one in lower courts the obligation of a lower court judge is to follow the supreme court right or wrong um, even if the lower court thinks that the supreme court is wrong it has to follow the supreme court precedent um, and uh, and you might say at first, well, Professor Amar, and this is sometimes called vertical precedent, um, uh, the idea that the Supreme Court is higher than um, the, the lower court. And even that, the phrase lower, you see, conjures up that, that um, uh, vertical um, image. You say, well, Professor Amar 
you said Constitution is the supreme law of the land, um, and a case that's inconsistent with it um, must yield. So if a lower court judge looks at the Constitution and sees it as inconsistent with a, a case, then why isn't, that lower, why isn't that lower court judge, why isn't she obliged to just follow the Constitution? And I say, well, here are two reasons. First, when you look at the Constitution itself, it says one court is supreme and all the other courts, federal courts, are inferior. That's the word that it uses twice, um, um, once in Article One and once in Article Three. They're inferior to the Supreme Court, so their job is to follow the Supreme Court's interpretation. Um, and the Constitution itself says so. That's an argument from text, and I, 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 it could be supplemented by um, arguments from, from history and structure. Um, and here's a, a second a reinforcing argument. The Supreme Court precedent has said this over and over again as well. Um, so could, now that could be seen as question begging, appealing to Supreme Court precedent to establish the primacy of Supreme Court precedent. Um, but um, even if it's circular, at least it's not contradictory. But in addition, um, we've got the text of the Constitution that says supreme and inferior. Now that's big. Um, very big. So if precedent means anything at all, it has to mean... Um, uh, that you follow wrong um, a precedent, I would say, actually, that's pretty much correct, but only for lower court judges. But they, they get, they're supposed to follow the Supreme Court right or wrong precisely because that's not the rule, with due respect, Justice Kagan, at the Supreme Court itself. The Supreme Court itself, in general, should um, uh, repudiate wrong precedents once it determines that they're wrong. Okay, and what about at the Supreme Court level itself? Okay, so now let me introduce a second point. If precedent means anything at all, it, mean, it has to mean following wrong precedents. No, here's what the Supreme Court should say. Even if you're a fundamentalist, you might say, ah, well, I'm going to start with precedent. Um, and unless the lawyers actually um, argue that a precedent should be overturned, I'm going to follow the precedent. I'm going to do so in part to make my life easier because I can't rethink everything every day from um, the ground up. I'm going to keep doing um, what we, the court, we are going to keep doing what we, the court, have, 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 have generally done until persuaded otherwise. So precedent is a starting point, a default rule for um, today's decision making, t- today's uh, Supreme Court, and um, and um, the Constitution itself, I think, is consistent with that because it, is, it, it constructs the court as a continuing body. It never turns over all at once the way the presidency does every January twentieth, or the way the House of Representatives does every January third. There's an entirely formally new um, uh, group of of House members. That's not how the Senate works. It's it's a staggered replenishment. Only a third of the body rotates out every. Um, uh, two, two years, two thirds um, uh, c- carry over, um, and the Supreme Court is uh, structured to be basically more like the Senate. Justices join the court one by one, uh, gradually, and so it's pretty much, you know, I think implicit in that system. I'm making a kind of a, an argument about the structure of the court itself and judicial replenishment. Um, a structure that, of course, the, our 18-year idea would uh, solidify even more, make it even more like the Senate, so that there's actually formal um, uh, uh, replenishment, uh, one every two years, just as one-ninth of the court, um, if you have an 18-year, um, in effect, um, term limit for Supreme Court justices, just like you have um, a third of the Senate 
every two years. Well, the nature of the Supreme Court is that the new person joining is joining a conversation that's already ongoing, a conversation that's in which the justices are doing basically what they've tended to do before, which is precedent. So um, my second point is, in addition to vertical precedent being important, um, over, um, overwhelmingly important, um, precedent at the Supreme Court, even if you're a fundamentalist, is a starting Point. So let me give you a third uh, reason for that. The, uh, those of us who are fundamentalists are believers in precedent. We just have a different understanding of it. And so it's, it, with all due respect, Justice Kagan and, and, and some of the, you others, it's silly to use this trope. If precedent means anything, it must mean blah, blah, blah. No, no. Actually, we're debating exactly how far precedent should go. Even if you um, are a fundamentalist, you have a sense of precedent. Vertical precedent, that was point one for lower courts. Um, uh, and point two is the Supreme Court starts with precedent. Third is um, precedent is persuasive authority. Um, even if you think that you should toss a precedent overboard, if you're persuaded it's wrong, you have to be persuaded it's wrong. And the fact that the, an earlier court decided otherwise might be actually um, um, an argument. Um, might be persuasive to you that your first instinct uh, was actually incorrect. That earlier case came from um, uh, people on the same court in which you're sitting. They were arguably closer in time to the relevant constitutional provision. Um, um, they, try, they, they were um, presumably tr- um, trying to look at the, the issue that, that you're looking at and, 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 and decided honestly and faithfully. And the fact that they decided um, the way they did um, uh, may be of persuasive authority, especially if um, the author of that decision or people who joined that decision are very respected um, jurists. Um, so um, precedent is an evidentiary way. Now you're not following precedent because it's, even though you think it's wrong, you're following precedent because you think actually on second or third thought it might be right, even though initially your instinct was it was wrong. And um, you're entitled to give uh, persuasive weight to a, a, a law review article by an eminent scholar, or, you know, a book by an eminent constitutional scholar, uh, uh, your favorite podcast um, with um, your favorite um, uh, uh, podcast characters, Andy and Akil. If you find the, the, um, what they say um, persuasive, if you find a, a scholarly a book by a constitutional scholar persuasive, um, uh, I have none in mind in particular, of mm-hmm. course, or, or a scholarly article. Um, but you might think, actually, an earlier Supreme Court case is maybe even more persuasive authority than that because, you know, Akil just bloviates and he makes lots of mistakes um, in, in the podcast because um, he's just, you know, he, he, he misdefines, you know, arson at common law because he's just doing, you know, one of these a, a week you know, without notes uh, much, a little bit of, 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 of prep with, with Andy beforehand, but, but, but not lots. Whereas a Supreme Court decision, oh, um, it's, it's nine justices um, and uh, with uh, briefing and oral argument um, and and careful uh, opinion drafting back and forth and law clerks reviewing everything and and there are real stakes involved maybe human life or liberty um, hanging in the balance concentrating the judicial mind um, so those are all reasons for thinking that. Um, Preston isn't just a starting point for the Supreme Court, but could actually be of persuasive authority. And sometimes 
the, 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 I'll say it a different way. Um, I, as a fundamentalist, follow the Constitution in part because um, I think it's wise. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what we, the people, have done over the years, wisdom of crowds, which is why even if you're in France or in Britain or India, you might want to know why the U.S. Supreme Court, excuse me, the U.S. Constitution says this rather than that, because you can learn from it, maybe. You can choose to follow it, even if it doesn't bind you. Um, So, too, you might think there's genuine wisdom um, at least possibly in what um, your predecessors have done. Sometimes you'll find that wisdom in the words they use, the, their rationale. Sometimes you'll find that wisdom actually in their results. You might think, you know, what they said doesn't make sense in Roe versus Wade or whatever, but actually the outcome does for a reason that they didn't quite um, highlight, but um, um, these judges actually had an intuition. They may have um, uh, not quite articulated the, right, the best rationale for it. Um, um, and I'll give you an example or two in a minute, but I know you want to jump in. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we can also, you know, you mentioned Britain and France and so forth. Um, we can also look at precedent in terms of the practice in other countries, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, the, and the practice that would be most relevant to our own would be British practice. Um, so what, is, what has British practice been on this question of persuasive authority? Um, the traditional British view for many centuries was actually that a court could not um, overrule itself um, uh, horizontally, so it had to follow the past precedent. It therefore, in Britain, had a very narrow idea of what actually um, o- um, uh, uh, overruling really um, meant and what the past precedent really meant. It was sufficient to say the following. Um, 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 we haven't overruled a case um, so long as the uh, uh, result we reach today and the reasons we offer today um, are consistent with the outcome of that previous case on its facts. Um, even if we disregard everything that every judge said in that earlier um, decision. Um, as, even if, in effect, we just reduce that case to its correctness on its facts, we haven't overruled it. Um, and why did I say it the way I did? Because for centuries there wasn't one written opinion of the court. Um, you had different judges, and they gave different rationales, and um, um, uh, often orally, and there was an outcome. Um, and and they, there wasn't actually um, cont- uh, uh, official reporting um, sometimes of, uh, uh, you know, t- typically, not sometimes, there, there wasn't official reporting of what the judges did. So it would be, and let's, now let's, let's apply all of that to, to Roe versus Wade. The, the Roe itself, um, you could say, well, said all sorts of things. Uh, you invoked 21 weeks. It had a trimester framework and all sorts of things. But the Roe case itself, as distinct from its companion case, um, Doe versus Bolton, but Roe versus Wade involved a Texas case that was about an abortion law passed in the 1850s, I believe, 1857 or so. Um, and you could say Roe was right. Um, there's, there was wisdom in what the courts did, but nothing that Blackman said, in his majority opinion, actually um, is persuasive to us. Um, but here's why Roe was right. It was decided at a time that women couldn't, um, the, the, excuse me, the statute was passed at a time when women couldn't even vote. This limit women's bodies, um, and no woman had ever voted for it. Um, Roe didn't talk about women's equality. It should have. Roe talked about privacy. That's um, um, uh, slightly awkward, given that there's another entity involved, and a doctor, and money, and, and, a, and a clinic outside the home, and all the rest. Roe 
called it privacy, maybe because the previous cases had been, some of them had been privacy cases, like Griswold Rowe was trying to bring itself into line with earlier cases, but it picked a wrong um, rationale, privacy. The right rationale is equality, and Roe is actually an easy case because uh, abortion laws limited uh, women's um, life prospects, and no woman had ever voted for it. Ah, so Roe was right, but it doesn't decide the case at hand because today we deal with a law from Texas or Mississippi or what have you um, that women, you know, did have a chance to, 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 in effect, to vote on when they voted for their relevant legislatures that passed these laws. Now, I just distinct, I just reduced Roe to its facts. Of course, there are many cases other than Roe that the Supreme Court has decided. There was the companion case of Doe versus Bolton and, and many post-Roe cases and all the rest. Um, but I'm just giving you an example of how sometimes precedent following um, might be um, a, a, the following idea. Right result, but wrong reasons. Um, sometimes it can actually be, oh, well, the reasoning makes sense, but we're not sure about actually the, 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 the result. But we can find wisdom um, in what, what previous judges have done. Uh, let me connect it to one issue that we've talked about in previous episodes, um, the issue of incorporation, the idea that after the 14th Amendment, the provisions of the Bill of Rights, the principles in them, Things like free speech, free press, free, uh, freedom of assembly, free exercise of religion, a right against unreasonable searches and, search and seizures, um, a, a right to a criminal jury tri- trial, um, and to um, a speedy trial and a public trial, etc., etc. After the 14th Amendment, these rights, which were originally um, protected uh, only against the federal government in Amendments 1 through 8, have come to be applied against the states come to be incorporated against the states. That's what the Supreme Court has basically said um, in case after case. The court has said, oh, the 14th Amendment does the work. It makes um, these rights applicable against states. It incorporates these rights against states. But the Supreme Court said, oh, it's the, it's the due process clause that does the work. Um, and you might think, oh, the court got it right in result in case after case after case, but gave actually... and and pretty um, close to being right in reasoning. These rights apply against states, and they apply against states because of the 14th Amendment, and they didn't quite sensibly apply um, perhaps against states before the 14th Amendment. So the 14th Amendment is doing the work. Um, So right result, um, um, they're pointing basically to the right reason, the 14th Amendment, but but you might think uh, they used the wrong clause. They shouldn't have called it due process. They should have called it the privileges or immunities clause. Now, why didn't they? They didn't because early on in a case called the Slaughterhouse Cases, the Supreme Court, in effect, read the privileges and immunities clause out of the Constitution, and later courts didn't want to admit that the slaughterhouse cases were wrong, so they just created workarounds and detours. But that, again, it's, you know, it's a whole story about precedent, about how the court actually has you know, sometimes been a little pig-headed and stubborn and not saying, as I said at the outset of this episode, oops, mea culpa, um, I goofed. Um, so instead, they call it substantive due process, um, rather than they should call it privileges or immunities when it comes to incorporation. So um, that's just a little bit more on precedent as persuasive authority, sometimes because of the rightness of the result on the facts of the case, sometimes because of the reasoning, sometimes because of both. You're actually persuaded on second or third thought that uh, the court got it right, even though your initial inclination was otherwise. So you follow precedent, not because it's wrong, but because on second and third thought, 
giving it due weight as persuasive evidence, you, you now think um, actually it got it right uh, at some level. So you're giving weight to the result uh, independent almost of the, of the reasoning. So for uh, and, example, and, and in, remember, remember in England, sometimes we didn't always have the reasoning. Mm-hmm. We had a multi-member court and different judges might have had different reasons. And sometimes they didn't even give us all their reasons and they didn't write them down. So yes, especially, you know, all this was because you asked me about British practice. British practice pays particular attention to the, the, the facts of the, the earlier case, um, uh, whether or not they were highlighted um, in the opinion. Um, Roe, you, you'll find actually reference to the fact that the, the, the law dates from the 1850s in, in Texas, but the court made really no, um, uh, didn't really emphasize that in its, in its rationale, but a later court could say, ah, that's really the key to the case. So if you're sitting on the Supreme Court at Gilmore and you're, you're, weigh- you're weighing a particular case, is it fair to say that you would give greatest weight to a precedent where you agree with the, with the result and you agree with the reasoning, um, but you would give less weight but still some weight to a case where you disagree with the reasoning but agree with the result? Um, well, I just try to do my best in a humble fashion. Again, let's just not make it about me, but just a, a good judge um, uh, should, should um, um, uh, following my um, advice, would try to actually approach the previous case in spirit of humility and ask herself why earlier judges did what they did. Um, and and sometimes and uh, you know that, that that humility says you know they they didn't articulate it in the best way um, but but they 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 were onto something they actually had an intuition on reflection I understand actually why they did what they did even if they didn't give the best reason for it okay and in the ca- in this case um, the Mississippi case um, we know that many legal scholars take a dim view of the re- of the reasoning in Roe, but they may nevertheless, you know, find some some wisdom in the result. So this, yeah, and this, I, I gave you, for example, already um, uh, uh, the, the standard view among many scholars that Roe should best be thought of as a case about women's equality rather than mm-hmm. privacy, and uh, the, you won't really see that in Roe. Roe talks all about the doctor. Um, again and again and again, the doctor is always referred to as a he, by the way, um, and he never a she. Um, um, you're a doctor, of course, and you're yes. a he. I'm, my wife's a doctor, and she's a she. My mom's a doctor, and she's a she. My dad's a doctor, and he's a he. Mm-hmm. Well, and actually, particularly since this would be a OBGYN doctor, um, there's a higher percentage of women in that field than in other fields. So it's particularly uh, in 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 apropos uh, in this case. Okay, so um, so these are again a variety of of fingers on the scale that you give to precedent when you are evaluating it, um, you know, when ju- or when you believe justices um, should be evaluating the case. They put the, these things, vertical precedent, um, the fact that, uh, that cases are binding on lower courts, um, the, uh, the default or starting rule, uh, and uh, persuasive authority. Um, right. So um, now, now here's an, here's another um, uh, uh, way in which I, even though I'm a fundamentalist, think that a precedent has weight. All these are um, arguments um, against. If precedent means anything, it must mean that you follow things even when they're wrong. Um, let's call it um, this fourth idea: um, a presumption against um, 
uh, a judicial remodeling, um, architectural remodeling. What, what do I mean by that? I mean, a lot of times, um, what the Supreme Court is doing isn't really interpreting the Constitution so much as implementing it. The Constitution says something, and we're pretty much agreed that they're, that, um, about what it says, but now we're going to have to cash that out, um, and we're going to have to sort of make up some, some specific rules about um, how to implement it. Um, so the metaphor is um, we're agreed that there's this patch of ground and, and the Constitution identifies it as special and the judges are supposed to actually defend this patch of ground um, and they do it by building, in effect, a, a, a judicial edifice, a house of a certain sort. Um, and um, the presumption against remodeling is as long as the house is actually where it's supposed to be, it's, it's correctly located on, on, on the map, on, on Google Maps, um, um, even if actually the, 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 the building is, um, uh, uh, and there are, different, there are different kinds of houses you could build, but uh, you know, as long as uh, the house that's built is, is serviceable, let's go with that rather than tr- continually trying to remodel it the way Jefferson was always tearing down um, Monticello and, and just trying to add, um, a, a, a tearing down uh, this, this room and then building it back up and then tearing it down again and, 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 and redoing it again and again. So uh, you know, an analogy here, um, would be, um, ah, let's take um, a, a constitutional provision that says there's a right not to be compelled to be a witness against yourself in a criminal case. And let's say that we're, we actually understand that that applies to the police station because if the police compel you to um, confess, um, they use coercion in, in various ways. It's an unreliable confession and it shouldn't be allowed in the court. So let's, let's assume that that's not a, a stretch. Um, uh, we all kind of understand that's the core Fifth Amendment idea, at least in a world of um, organized police, which you didn't have actually at the founding, but we do today. Okay, but there are a whole bunch of different ways you could, you could build a house, a judicial house, on the edifice. You could look at all the facts and circumstances of every given uh, police uh, house confession case. Uh, how old was the suspect? Was he 17 years old? Was he 30 years old? Did he have any experience with the criminal justice system? Is this his 10th time through the system or the first time he's picked up by the cops? Um, how long was he interrogated? Did they, um, did they give him sandwiches? Was his lawyer allowed to be there? Was this audio recorded? Um, uh, and you look at all the facts and circumstances to decide whether really his will was overborne and he was coerced. So that's one approach. Second might be, that's just going to be too difficult for judges to do, case by case by case, so we're going to come up with a bright line rule. The rule is Miranda. Unless the the suspect is actually told certain things, we're just going to presume that the coercion, uh, the confession, uh, including that he has a right to a lawyer, um, and that a lawyer will be appointed for him if he can't afford one, we're going to presume coercion. But if Miranda is, uh, warning is issued, we're going to presume in general that the, um, uh, unless there's some special factor that the, um, the resulting confession was permissible. You know, a third um, rule might be, no, um, Miranda, we shouldn't have a Miranda warning, we should just have a a rule that lawyers should be um, in the station house. A fourth would be, no, we shouldn't have lawyers in the station house, um, defendants and lawyers, because they're going to just tell the guy to clam up. Um, We should have neutral observers. Um, in the station house. Oh, we should have a magistrate uh, observing the whole thing. Oh, we should have a videotape or an audio tape. There, there are different ways of building the building, the judicial edifice. Um, 
Uh, and, and one idea of precedent is, unless it's pretty clear that your new building is going to be better than the earlier one, um, we have a presumption against judicial remodeling, but we're not doing anything that actually we believe is inconsistent with the correct interpretation of the Constitution. There's just a multiple choice of, of houses we could have, different options for, for building out and building on the constitutional principle. That's a deep theory of precedent. It's just not Elena Kagan's theory, but precedent means something, you see, even to us fundamentalists. So the idea there on precedent would be if the law, if the decision had been made that you know, Miranda's required and that's uh, sufficient, then a case comes along and says, um, well, you know, you, you also, you know, should have videotaped it or yes. something like that. And, yes. and you, you say, no, you know, that maybe that would have been better, maybe not, but the precedent says this is what's required and we're not going to change that unless you've really convinced us that we were wrong to require this, to, to do it this way. Yeah, because there's there, there are just different ways of doing it. It's you know, um, uh, uh, no matter what you do, you could have done something slightly differently. Well, but then of course, so in this case, um, in Roe here or in the Mississippi case, uh, if you're saying, well, the idea is to uh, protect, you know, the state's interest in uh, in the fetus. Um, and we said 21 weeks, now you're saying 15 weeks. Um, that's just a different, you know, edifice on that. But that's a uh, brilliant question, Andy. Why is this not undercutting the fundamentalist um, uh, reject, uh, instinct to repudiate um, a, a precedent um, in the Roe context? Here's why. Because the critics of Roe don't acknowledge that there's actually a, um, a patch of ground underneath the, the judicial building. They just say, you just made the whole thing up. There's not actually um, a constitutional text the way there is with um, an, uh, uh, the Fifth Amendment that no uh, person can be compelled to be a witness against himself in a criminal case. So they say the, the entire thing is, is, is made up all, um, um, uh, start to finish. Um, and so we're not really just I'm talking about um, judicial remodeling here. We're, we're talking about something that doesn't have a proper constitutional foundation. Yeah, so that, uh, and the analogy here would be that in Miranda, the foundation is, uh, you know, against self-incrimination. Exactly. That's something which is a, f a firm foundation. On the other right. hand, could you make the argument that, well, if Mississippi, if you're making that argument, then what's 15 weeks? What's that about? You know, why there, do you have any such rule? You the, know, the, the aren't you granting? And, and, the and Mississippi could say, you know, you're right. Um, we give 15 weeks as a matter of grace. It could have been 15 hours. Or they could say, ah, here's a foundation for um, unenumerated rights um, uh, that um, states can't be outliers. States actually have to um, uh, generally um, be in sync um, with what most other states are, are doing. Now, Griswold, you see, flunked that test. Connecticut made it a crime for married couples to use contraception in the home, um, even though no other state did that. So they were the outlier. Roe, on the other hand, did by, to remind our audience, came up with a trimester system um, that uh, uh, rendered the laws of 49 of the 50 states 
unconstitutional. Only uh, New York was real compliant. Mississippi could said 15 weeks is about the sweet spot um, in America. Lots of states would would want to restrict a, abortion um, after 15 weeks, but very few are, are, are you know going to go uh, all the uh, way to, to to Texas. So so um, if the foundations of the right are um, rooted in American practice um, and and what the people are trying to do state by state, if the court would, would let them, 15 weeks is, is um, on, on the right side of the, the consensus sweet spot. Again, talking about ways that, in your theory, theory, that there are fingers on the scale that precedent offers, um, this, this would seem to point to another one, this last thinking. The notion that uh, a case might have been wrongly decided um, at the time, but it can become... Uh, a norm or embraced by the American people over time. Ah, so when we're talking about unenumerated rights, here's my theory. Unenumerated rights can be rooted in um, iconic um, American symbols like the Declaration of Independence or the Gettysburg Address or MLK's um, I Have a Dream speech. Unenumerated rights can be rooted in what Americans actually believe their rights to be. Now, I have to be clear. If the, if the text gives... Um, uh, um, recognizes a constitutional right, X. If that right becomes unpopular, who cares? Until X is amended out of the Constitution, judges enforce X. Okay, so if, if a right's in the Constitution, it's rock solid, um, even if it loses popular support, um, unless the Constitution is amended. There are provisions of the Constitution that aren't about rights. And again, we wouldn't, you know, poll the citizenry on what they think about the 35-year um, clause for presidential eligibility or the rules of um, removal of, uh, uh, of cabinet officers or something by, by presidents. Um, but in the domain of unenumerated rights, rights not structure, and more rights than the text authorizes rather than less, in that domain... Um, it might be a sufficient basis to recognize a right that m- most states and most places actually um, um, do um, a- 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 allow this um, practice. Um, um, and if, if that's the idea, let's take Miranda. Let's imagine that someone said, actually, M- Miranda was mistaken at the time it was decided. But subsequent to Miranda, Americans have really embraced the idea, um, even um, when they weren't obliged to. Um, various localities built on Miranda in various ways, or, or states, or uh, Americans kind of embraced it culturally, from um, dragnet to law and order to um, uh, your favorite, um, uh, more modern um, uh, uh, police drama. Um, so on that view, even if Miranda was wrong the day it was decided, it has come to become right because in the interim, it's been widely and enthusiastically embraced by the American people. Now, the question is, is that so for Roe versus Wade? And now we come back to settled, you know, I think, because I don't think that's true. Even if, even if there's a majority in support of Roe versus Wade, is it deep and broad and, um, uh, and isn't there an intense opposition on the other side, which... For example, you don't see in Miranda, police departments like Miranda today, it actually tells them what to do, and as long as they Mirandize, they pretty much know that the, the, the con- any confession that they get is going to be a good one, and you and I, are, which are, are, are law and order f- um, uh, fans slash fanatics, we see the, all the time, you know, um, the, the cops 
uh, abiding by Miranda, but but getting uh, people to 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 say things that um, uh, they probably um, it was not in their interest to say in the police station. Cops have have, have basically come to embrace Miranda. They they it gives them a, a framework um, to work with. So yes, yet another idea is even if a case, because you might say, well, where are you getting these ideas? Even if a case is rightly de- wrongly decided, excuse me, it can come to be right later on. You might say, well, Professor, I thought you said Constitution is the Constitution. It trumps everything. Yes, the Constitution t- has a Ninth Amendment text. It's about unenumerated rights. It talks about privileges and immunities above and beyond um, what um, uh, is enumerated. Where do those unenumerated rights come from? from the American people. If the American people have embraced a right, um, it becomes a right, even if they embraced it as a result of a, a, a precedent that was mistaken the day it was decided, you see. Um, so I'm trying to, uh, um, here again, um, offer an account of precedent that's more consistent with an, uh, the, the text of the Constitution than um, the, the Kagan approach, which seems actually not to be interested in reconciling things with the Constitution rightly understood. Well, I would argue that in this scenario that you've outlined, it's not really a precedent. Okay, you know, in other words, you know, the, yeah, it, it, it does. It, it, it's 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 the it's the American endorsement rather than the precedent as such. Right. It's You're just right. a coincidence that it was introduced by by way of a of an incorrect you know yeah, yeah. decision I, could I just as easily have I, come. I from, wouldn't say it's just a coincidence, Andy. It, it, you know, because Americans may have come to embrace this because the court told them, perhaps erroneously, that this was their constitutional birthright or something. So it's the precipitant, it's the prompt. Um, but coincidence, you know, maybe doesn't give um, the judges sort of sufficient credit for um, their articulation of this originally, even if erroneously, as um, rooted in some constitutional principle or other. Right. I think it treats the justices as thought leaders, as yes. you know, moral exemplars or whatever, or, yeah. uh, or as theorists of the American way, yes. rather than as, as constitutional decision makers in this case. So Could, that, that, that's why I would move yeah. away from terming it a precedent, yeah. because it's um, in their non-legal functions that they're, that they're doing that they're acting. well they were doing it you know not um, by writing op-eds or, or or books or giving after dinner speeches they were doing it in a, in a case mm-hmm. um, and uh, but um here again we're seeing um uh, all all sorts of ways in which precedent can count even if you know you um uh, are a, a fundamentalist mm-hmm. okay and now um we've got a couple of, uh, another uh finger on the scale, um, and then I think we'd like, we want to get into some actual critiques of uh, Professor Kagan's, uh, or Justice Kagan's theory of precedent. We want to critique it, um, but what we're really doing now is responding to a theoretical critique that we, we think she would offer of your uh, theory, okay. Um, okay. namely that namely that you don't consider precedent. So we're talking about ways that you do. And right. then we want to we, we get into some critiques of hers. Okay. Um, and so I think the last one that we had um, on our list here was uh, the, that's something we mentioned last time on the question of reliance interest. Yes. If a precedent decides something, uh, uh, it, it creates facts on the ground. 
just as, Andy, you know, um, Miranda creates facts on the ground that can precipitate um, t- television shows like Dragnet, which become then cultural phenomenon, and then people think that this is their right, um, um, even if it, it wasn't um, from a, a certain fundamentalist point of view, but it, has be- it becomes one of their unenumerated rights. So and actually, pre- and actually, just a, as a sort of comedic uh, circular take on that, um, yes, Miranda creates a fact on the ground. One fact it creates on the ground is that you probably don't need Miranda because everyone has heard the Miranda warnings on TV as a result um, of the of the, of, the, of this. So let's. Uh, I wish I had thought of that point. That's a great point. Oh, I did think of that point. Uh, so uh, um, I will put up on the show notes um, uh, uh, an essay that I wrote for the LA Times probably about twenty years or so when I, I make just that point. I said if you had given the Miranda court the following choice. Choice one, um, cops will always, always, always follow Miranda to a T, but people won't understand what they're saying because they're traumatized at the point of arrest and they, they don't know what's going on and the, they, they hear this, these, these words, but it's like Latin high mass to them. It won't register. Um, um, but the cops will always follow it. Um, world two, the cops will almost always follow it, but not, you know, to a T, but it doesn't matter because every American will have been Mirandized um, a thousand times before ever being picked up by the cop because of this thing called television, where they're going to be able just to, you know, that you can recite by memory. You have the right to remain silent. If you give up that right, anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. You know, if you have to have attorney, if you cannot afford attorney, one will be appointed. You know, um, um, like, this is like to all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun or whatever. It, it's just um, Andy is smiling because we're from a certain generation. We remember that, that, that ad, okay? You know, it, it's, it's like the, the, the lyrics to let it be or whatever. It's just ingrained. If you had said to the justices, which would you prefer? You know, a world where the court um, um, is always followed but, never under, but not really quite understood or a world in which the, the, the cops don't always follow the court, but it's just become part of the culture. They would so much prefer the latter, which you're right. Even if we tried to overrule Miranda today, at least for 30 years, it wouldn't make a difference because everyone's been Mirandized. They already know that. They don't need the cops to tell them that. They know that. You're right. right. So that's a fact on the ground that the case itself produced. Yes, produce. and so too, now back to reliance. Let's imagine that a court decision has come down. Let's imagine it's erroneous um, uh, from the point of view of today, but it still did create facts that we have to that that, that are re- relevant. And I call those facts, you know, reliance interests of a certain sort. Now, first, you know, where you can say, well, Akil, you're just making up these things. Where are they coming from? I thought you were fundamentalist. Yes, I am. The Constitution itself is law. And it talks about the judicial power, and judicial power is retrospective. It's about cases and controversies. It's about things that have already happened, and judges are supposed to apply the law to facts that have already happened. And because of that, um, um, and the Constitution also talks about the rule of law and due process, I have to actually pay attention to what actually happened. And what happened is the court long ago decided X, and that actually had effects in the world for the case at hand. Uh, example. Let's go to the, the New York gun case that we talked about recently. Let's imagine that the court strikes down this New York law that um, uh, limits the ability to carry um, uh, uh, firearms um, outside your home um, 
Um, and the court says this law is unconstitutional. It gives too much discretion to the government officials to grant or deny the license um, willy-nilly um, on a whim. I think that's what the court will say, by the way. Um, so knowing that the court has done this, even though the statute formally is on the books, here's what your audience needs to understand. Judicial review doesn't wipe a statute off the books. That statute is on the, the books in New York, but the Supreme Court in this case is going to say New York can't enforce that law, okay, as a practical matter. Um, um, so, um, but let's imagine that in the future, the Supreme Court changes its mind. Um, it um, has new justices um, appointed by President Biden or whatever, um, or the existing justices change their mind because we see lots of Kyle Rittenhouse situations and think, oh my God, we, we created a monster here, so we, we want to revise our um, earlier um, ruling. Um, okay, and that would be overruling precedent. And, and one argument might be, oh, um, we were wrong to begin with, but another might be, Things happened afterward that that have changed our mind. So it's it, it, um, um, it's wronger now than it was the day it was decided because of the Kyle Rittenhouse um, matter or, or, or other things. So fine. Even if the court changes its mind um, and wants to overrule that case, it has to pay attention to the fact that some people relied on that case. A person actually carried a gun outside his home and did so because he was told that he, you know, he wasn't going to be able to be prosecuted um, if he did so because the court had said, pay no attention to the statute. The statute is inert. It's, it's, in, it's inoperative. And he would have never done that had the New York case actually been um, decided um, against the gun claim. So this is a narrow argument for reliance. If, because of a judicial decision, an individual is made worse off than he would have been um, had um, the court got it wrong, uh, got it right from the beginning, you have to take that into account. If the, if the government through the Supreme Court, has basically misled someone into um, doing something that otherwise would have been illegal, you can't punish the person for that because the Constitution itself talks about due process and the rule of law and, and, and government um, and, um, um, needing to give you fair notice before it puts you um, in, in, in prison and because the judicial power is retrospective in nature. Now, now what the court could do is say, ah, because of that, we're going to overrule the gun case, but we're going to do so prospectively with a phase, and we're going to say... Um, um, anyone who actually has carried a gun outside the home in reliance on our earlier case, that's all protected. But going forward, starting J January 1st of next year, to give uh, 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 people a chance to, to uh, hear the news, um, um, this law will um, uh, can now be um, enforced again. Um, um, but, but reliance interests are important. Um, um, but in my view, they're, they're limited. Um, Here's, let me give you a case where I don't think there is reliance, because um, I'm reliant isn't the same as precedent, you see. It's only a certain kind of precedent in a certain way, typically involving individual rights or maybe property rights or commercial transactions. Right, these um, are examples where you're paying attention to precedent. You know, you're not discounting it. You know, and the argument being that, yes, you're, you're ignoring precedent, Professor Moore. So, no, you're not ignoring it here. You're, you're taking it into account, although yes. that's not the same thing as, as deciding a case differently on this basis. Well, see, um, uh, 
Kagan, uh, Justice Kagan cares about Roe, so her first argument is going to be present, present, present. And her second argument is she's going to try to, try to recast and just say reliance. It's just going to be another way of, of trying to make it. But, but let me give you um, examples where reliance cannot count. Reliance cannot count. Um, you can't say, gee, because of Plessy versus Ferguson, an entire generation of white people grew up with a sense of their own superiority over black people, and, and you can't pull the rug, rug out from under them um, in, in Brown versus Board of Education. And I can say, I absolutely can, because they are no worse off than they would have been, really, um, had Plessy gotten it right to begin with. Um, all, they, they've had 60 years of unjustified um, sense of, of racial superiority and entitlement, but they're not worse off than if Plessy had never been decided. Um, um, so, so someone's going to say, oh, well, because of Roe versus Wade, an entire generation of women have come to see themselves in a certain way, and you can't pull the rug out from under them. Oh, no, I don't think that's really a strong reliance argument. Or, or, or an, 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 another way of putting it is, any reliance argument that you want, are tempted to make, I want you to think about in the context of Brown versus Board of Education and see whether it's really different than the white supremacist claim of, of reliance interest. Here might be a reliance interest claim. Gee, um, Roe versus Wade was on the books um, when um, I chose voluntarily to, to, to have sex. I actually used protective, um, I, I, I used contraception, but I knew that there was a risk of contraceptive failure and um, the availability of abortion was my fallback. Um, and I relied on Roe for that, and you can't pull the rug out from under me because I actually made decisions relying on this as my fallback. And I say, I actually can see that. That's a reliance. But that's going to work only for nine months. Um, and, and when the Mississippi case is decided or the Texas case, if they want to just completely um, revise Roe's rules, um, they might be able to say, we think Roe was wrong. It didn't have a foundation. Um, it went too far, blah, blah, blah. But actually, um, people who um, engaged in procreative or potentially procreative activity in reliance on Roe, that and it must be protected. So these new laws can't kick in for nine months. And of course, I'm picking nine months because that's the, 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 the length of a standard pregnancy. Um, but after that, um, I'm not quite sure that there's the strong reliance argument that makes this issue any different from Brown and Plessy. Now, uh, my friend, former student Noah Feldman, um, has uh, recently um, written, oh, once the Supreme Court recognizes a right, even if it's um, erroneous in doing so, it can't pull it back. He has this kind of ratchet theory. Um, not of precedent generally, but only of rights, and only in rights cases where the court has, in effect, gone um, arguably you know, too far in the, li- in, a, in, in the direction of individual rights. He says they can never pull back. And I'm saying, gee, I don't know where he's getting that. I don't quite think that that's true as a matter of reliance. I don't think that's quite true as a matter of unenumerated rights. In fact, in the 1930s, the courts recognized all sorts of overly exuberant um, uh, um, rights uh, of, of, of property and contract and did pull back. That's the part of the, the New Deal revolution. In Casey itself, in the abortion context, the court pulled back 
on um, uh, some of the uh, exuberant things that that Roe versus Wade um, had had said. Um, so, so I don't think, in fact, it is true as a matter of precedent that the the court has never pulled back on an unenumerated right. Um, and I don't know where you're getting that as a matter of constitutional first principles. I don't think it comes from the Ninth Amendment. I don't think it comes from the rule of law. But I've identified what I do think come from things like the Ninth Amendment and the rule of law. And we've talked on this podcast that there should be a higher bar um, to what with to pulling back on a right, but that doesn't mean that that we've we haven't advocated for there to be no possibility or no ability for the Supreme Court to do that. And one way of understanding that Casey dictum might be okay. You could say, um, if I'm trying to explain it. Um, uh, Thinking that a case was wrongly decided isn't enough, but maybe it should generally be enough if the case were, re- if you think it were really wrongly decided. Oh, and then Amar would add, and there's no reliance interest, um, uh, uh, and the, 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 uh, the, the law hasn't sort of been blessed by um, um, uh, a popular informal um, ratification a la uh, uh, Miranda. Well, I mean, what's, what's different about saying, okay, Keelmar says it's, that it has to be really wrongly decided, with Elena Kagan saying we demand a special justification over and above the belief that the precedent was wrongly decided. Could that special justification take the, do the work that really wrongly decided? I, I hope so, but she's not. I don't think she. That, I'm not sure that that's what she thinks. Mm-hmm. But um, but I'm just. I'm tra- now. Um, that brings us, Andy, to the final set of points, which are what do the precedents actually say and do about precedent? Because I am, am wrestling with two sentences in two cases, um, uh, precedents about precedent, Casey and this Cooper versus Allen case. Um, um, and, um, uh, but I want to basically um, make two points about meta-precedent, about precedents about precedents. Here's the first that despite what Casey said, despite what um, Cooper versus Allen said, the Supreme Court on at least seven cases in the 20th century um, reversed themselves merely because the earlier case was wrongly decided. No additional special justification of any sort. And that includes, um, as we talked about in the last episode, the West Virginia versus Barnett case saying there's a, um, a, a right not to be compelled to salute a flag if you're in a public school. And, and the court um, landmark decision, 1943, overruled an earlier case. Um, and it just overruled it because it said it was wrong. There was no other special justification. We got it wrong two years ago in 1941 in Gobitis. We, uh, oops, we goofed, mea culpa. And the court did the same thing with a 100-year-old precedent called Swift versus Tyson and a landmark decision called Erie versus Tompkins. Oops, we goofed, mea culpa. No special justification un- other than, quote, the unconstitutionality of the course pursued, the, the, the previous case, uh, line of, long line of cases, not just one case, long line of cases in, in Erie versus Tompkins, and there are five others. And until Cooper versus Allen or Casey um, and their disciples actually come to grips with those seven cases, they're, um, they're really the ones that are kind of out of sync with actual practice of the Supreme Court when it comes to um, uh, uh, precedent. So, so that's one point, meta-precedent, uh, uh, that the cases where, in fact, the court has, contrary to what Justice Kagan said, overruled itself um, without any special justification. Now, of course, uh, the, the other way that her statement could be um, 
you know, a, a, a valid one judicially would be if, in fact, she was overruling that previous precedent on precedent. In other words, um, that now she's saying, this is how we're going to think about precedent from now on. As right. opposed to how but, we did before. But that would be self-contradictory because she'd need some special justification that she hasn't offered, and she'd actually need to be aware that those um, uh, she is actually acting inconsistently with those seven cases, and I'm not sure any of that was so because, you know, oh, Elena, I wish you would read what I wrote. You don't have to agree with it, but it's out there. I, I wrote it for you. Um, call me, <laughs> uh, uh, maybe, um, to uh, bar- borrow from Carly Rae Jepsen. So... Um, now, the other big point about precedent, and I think here we, we're drawing to a close, um, is I self-describe as um, a, a liberal. Um, so does Elena Kagan. Um, this is a family disagreement. This is not conservatives against liberals. Um, this is a debate in which uh, Hugo Black, a great liberal, was on my side. He was a fundamentalist, um, like Clarence Thomas on the conservative side, which takes me actually to the most important, actually, precedents of all, which are, in effect, Hugo Black's precedents. They're precedents about precedent. Hugo Black led the Warren Court Revolution in which all, the, all sorts of previous precedents were overruled. Um, and they were overruled on fundamentalist grounds. And at the end of the day, um, good liberals today... Um, are basically, and conservatives, all of us, are living in the house that the Warren Court made, an edifice saying the Bill of Rights applies against the states. And the conservatives say, oh, that, that's true for gun rights as well as Second Amendment rights uh, along with First Amendment rights. That's what the New York case is all about, applying the Second Amendment against states and localities. Um, so the, fu- the final fundamental problem, I think, with... Um, uh, the, the precedent worshippers is they can't explain where the precedents themselves came from. The landmark precedents that that are nine zero in today's Supreme Court, like Brown versus Board of Education, um, like um, uh, uh, one person one vote, like incorporation of the Bill of Rights against the states, all of those precedents came from the Warren Court, which established those precedents by wait for it, overruling or breaking with the earlier precedents. And you've written on this, of course, in uh, America's Unwritten Constitution, um, in Chapter 4, Confronting Modern Case Law, America's Warranted Constitution. Yes, there was a pun there, and I'm so glad because I, I see actually a book in your hand, and you're going you're gonna to read from my book, which always pleases me. And now, this is not the new book, The Words That Made Us, um, America's Constitutional Conversation, 1760 to 1840. This was a, a book from, uh, I think, around 2012 or so, America's Unwritten Constitution. Yeah, and, and the subtitle is The Precedents and Principles We Live By. You see, so I, I do believe in precedent. I just believe in precedent in a different way than does Elena. And um, my version of precedent, just to repeat, better aligned with what the text actually says about itself, it's the supreme law of the land, what the text says about precedent, um, that there's the rule of law and judicial power, which is retrospective, and all of that takes into account um, uh, previous facts. So I'm saying my approach better uh, uh, harmonizes what the text says about itself, supreme law, what the text says about precedent, there's a role for it, it's part of judicial power. What precedent says about the text, um, 
the meta precedent um, that the text trumps, and what precedent says about itself, about precedent, that precedent actually yields in all sorts of situations. So, so that's why this book from 2012 was called America's Unwritten Constitution, subtitle, The Precedents and Principles We Live By. I believe in precedents just in a different way than does Justice Kagan. Okay, so here, and I think that the point about the Warren Court is a is a powerful one. Um, obviously, the press, the fact that the Supreme Court has um, reversed itself, as you said, seven times in the 20th century, just because it was wrong, does stand in the does seem to fly in the face of saying that you can't reverse yourself just because you were wrong. But yes. <laughs> but anyway, and, and I call those naked overrulings, meaning in effect, no additional justification. What would Justice Kagan count as some additional justifications? Things like, oh, after the case was decided, um, there were further developments that undermined the reasoning of the earlier case. Um, oh, um, um, here's one for example, for example. There are lots of later cases that have begun to drift away and, and now actually to follow the main line of, of cases that have drifted away, we have to overrule the earlier one that's been, kind of been left bereft, a, a, a derelict. So we're overruling one case in the name of other cases, you see. That's what a precedent person might say. Or we, we established this rule in case one, we tried to apply it in cases two, three, and four, but it turned out to be really unworkable. Um, it just Lower courts had great difficulty applying it, so that's why we overrule it. But we overrule it for doctrinal reasons, for judge-based reasons, for kind of precedent reasons. It was an unworkable precedent. Those are the sorts of things that Justice Kagan would count as reasons for um, overruling precedent. Those aren't quite fundamentalist reasons. It was, you know, we overrule it just because it was wrong as a matter of text, history, and structure. Now, um, seven cases were pure naked overrulings, nothing other than it was wrong, no special justification. But the Warren Court overruled many more than seven cases, um, and not all seven that I mentioned were actually Warren Court cases. I'm not counting them as pure naked overrulings because they often said it's wrong. Oh, and here are some additional reasons as well. Um, but what you need to understand is whether they were naked um, or clothed, so to speak, with additional justifications. The Warren Court was a court that absolutely repudiated precedents across a huge range of the American constitutional experience. And I would say rightly so, and, and um, led by not Earl Warren, truthfully, he wasn't the intellectual leader, um, but Hugo Black, who was a fundamentalist. And this, uh, this chapter where you get into this in great detail is 58 pages long. I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs from the beginning and a couple of paragraphs from the end and then leave it to the reader to read all the evidence in between. Um, when Earl Warren joined the court as its 14th Chief Justice in 1953, uh, Jim Crow ruled the South. Many states disenfranchised blacks with impunity. The Bill of Rights did not generally apply against the states. The court had never used the First Amendment to invalidate congressional action. Some states had succeeded in chilling uh, core political expression. State-organized prayers were commonplace in public school classrooms. State criminal defendants had precious few constitutional rights. No general right to vote existed. Almost all state legislatures were malapportioned, some grossly so. Over the next 16 years, Warren helped change all that 
dismantling the old judicial order and laying the foundations of the basic doctrinal regime that has remained in place ever since. Warren did not act alone, of course, but it is conventional to periodize the Supreme Court by reference to its chief justices, and the Warren Court is an especially handy, handy label. The term denotes a remarkable period of judicial history, beginning with the court's deliberations and decision in Brown versus Board of Education, and culminating in a series of landmark rulings in the 1960s that dramatically extended the reach of the Bill of Rights and revolutionized the right to vote. So that describes really the, the magnitude of the impact of the Warren Court. Now, here's a section that describes it with reference to precedent. The general fidelity of the Warren Court to the deepest ideals of the written Constitution came at the expense of fidelity to precedent. As one tart critic put it, quote, the list of opinions destroyed by the Warren Court reads like a table of contents from an old constitutional law casebook, unquote. Under Warren, the court overruled itself in some 45 cases, more than half as many times as in the entire history of pre-Warren America. Since Warren, the court has continued this brisk pace of overruling. For example, in the 70s and 80s, the court overturned its own precedents in over 60 cases. Here, too, the Warren court established the basic judicial model that still applies. If the Warren court was essentially right in its constitutional vision— and if earlier courts that had rejected that vision were wrong, if, for example, Plessy stank and Brown soared, if incorporation was constitutionally correct, whereas earlier cases erred in refusing to protect Americans from state abuses, if Warren and company were right to embrace federal civil rights and voting rights laws that earlier justices had improperly condemned or ignored, if Gideon deserves to be glorified for overturning an earlier decision that was impoverished even at the moment it was handed down, then what does this say about the court itself over time? Just this. For much of its history after John Marshall and before Earl Warren, the court dishonored both the terse text and the American people who enacted and continued to embrace that text. The Warren Court's friends who urged the justices to quit worrying about the written Constitution got it backward. Reflecting the deep wisdom of the American people in their most decisive moments, the written Constitution deserves judicial fidelity, both because it is the law and because for all its flaws, it has usually been more just than the justices. In the century and a half since the Civil War, the court whose grand themes most closely track the letter and spirit of that text, the Warren Court, is the court that has quite rightly enjoyed the most enduring influence over both its judicial successors and American society more generally. All this raises several hard questions about how precedent should generally operate in a system where ultimate authority resides in the Constitution and not the court. And of course, that's what we've been talking about today. Exactly. So, yeah, I think that makes the point there that, you know, if you, if you didn't have this kind of a framework about precedent, we would be stuck in the world before the Warren Court. Yeah. And I don't think Justice Kagan would be very comfortable with that. And the irony is she clerked for Thurgood Marshall. And, you know, where would Thurgood Marshall be if the court had just been uh, precedent worshippers? Because the, precedent, the, relevant, the most important precedent was Plessy v. Ferguson. 
And, and Thurgood Marshall, very famously, was the lawyer who, um, as uh, uh, the representative of the NAACP, uh, convinced the court, basically, um, to, to break with press. And it didn't, as we talked about before, formally overrule Plessy, but it sharply broke with Plessy and has come to be understood as basically overruling Plessy, which has come to be understood, and this is a phrase the court has used, as wrong the day it was decided, and for me, that's enough. You don't need any special justification beyond that. Okay, so here we are on the eve of the oral argument, and you, your prediction is that we will hear questions from Justice Kagan or arguments from uh, the uh, opposition to Mississippi that will call on president-related um, mm-hmm. theories. Yes. So suppose that you are correct, and it's not all about precedent, and suppose that Roe is a poorly reasoned case. Nevertheless, you as an advocate um, don't love the Mississippi law. What's your argument? Um, Well, the best argument might be that there are unenumerated rights, um, that they are defined in part by the um, Overton window of state practice, kind of, um, uh, and that... um, 15 weeks is really out of sync with um, what most states actually um, uh, have recognized as a traditional, um, uh, at least in the modern era, ability of women to um, make choices, that they need time to decide um, whether they want to continue the pregnancy, and 15 weeks is not enough, not as measured by the text history and structure of the Constitution as originally understood, but modern American practice, which is a source of unenumerated rights, that um, that uh, um, 15 weeks isn't enough, but, but, but 21 is, or something like that. And, mm-hmm. and but, but then we'd actually be looking at the real source, I believe, of unenumerated rights in America, which is um, um, actual American practice. Okay, and so we'll be back next week after the argument. We'll, I'm sure, take some time to look at it. Um, and we may even get back to books. Eventually. And Eventually. we've got some other great end-of-the-year stuff yes, uh, we do. In, in the works. And, and once again, uh, we made a promise to address your questions, and we're looking forward to that. Um, and uh, I think we should repeat that this kind of feedback is very helpful, um, as is feedback uh, in, in the form of reviews uh, of the podcast and even more importantly, I think, to one member of this podcast, um, reviews of the book, The Words That Made Us, um, which uh, you can post on Amazon or, or Goodreads. I think Amazon's probably the best place um, to post such a review. And you don't have to have bought the book from Amazon. You could have taken it out of your public library or whatever and, and read it. You know, I think that we've been taking some time to quote from your writings um, and a lot of the a lot of the quotes have been coming from America's unwritten constitution and a lot of the quotes uh, from the words that made us. A lot of the things that you've been talking about on your, your tour, and of course you're talking about the book, but when people ask questions, um, there's a lot in that book that I think uh, can serve you, the reader, as well in the discussions you have around the uh, Thanksgiving table and, and uh, the other family tables to come. 
And speaking of Thanksgiving, Andy, I give you thanks for that very nice plug. <laughs> Much appreciated. <laughs> okay. Well, thanks again, and we'll be back next week, and it'll be interesting to tune into the oral argument.